Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma crew. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Mind Your Own Karma, The Adoption Chronicles. I just want to say real quick, we will be approaching 100 episodes at the end of summer. And that is super exciting, a great milestone for Mind Your Own Karma and myself. So thanks so much for hanging in there with me through all the changes and the twists and turns. I truly appreciate each and every one of you. So let's jump right into today's episode. Today, I have a very insightful young man, Frankie Cohen, on the show today. Let me tell you a little bit about Frankie. Frankie was born in Seoul, South Korea, and adopted at five months old to a family in Portland, Oregon. Being adopted has posed many challenges in his life, most of them still unresolved. However, over the past couple years, he has been working diligently to try and heal himself from the wounds of his past. Through deep self-reflection, support from his loved ones, and the willingness to be a better person, Frankie has come a long way. He thanks you for listening to his story today. Here is my interview with Frankie Cohen. So we're welcoming Frankie Cohen to the show today. Hi, Frankie. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Awesome. So let's just jump right in and tell us what you know about the circumstances of your adoption. Um, Well, I know that I was adopted through an agency called Holt. I think they're an organization that hosts a lot of uh, adoptions in Korea specifically, South Korea specifically, but maybe other areas in Asia. And I was adopted at five months old. I was in a foster care system up until when I was born, when I came to the United States. And um, yeah, that's pretty much my story. I don't know too much beyond that. I think I had a broken collarbone when I was born. My bones were soft. And so I think I did have some like medical issues right at the beginning, Mm. which kind of, I don't know, complicated things in terms of just needing, you know, attention and whatnot. So Yeah. So you don't know the circumstances, like why your mother gave you up or you don't know any of that stuff. Yeah. They kept that pretty private, unfortunately. Yeah. And especially in Korean culture, you know, I think, I don't know, this is like the story, but like they had me out of wedlock Mm. and that's very frowned upon in Korean societies. So, um, yeah, I assume that it was kept pretty secretive my birth. So, yeah. And then you were saying the um, agency that you were adopted through, was it all kids from Korea only or? I think, no, I think, I think it was pretty big uh, in China as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So most, mostly Asian adoptions. Yeah. Asian adoptions holds. Yeah. It's the agency. And then were all those children coming to America or all over the world, do you know, through that agency? Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure it was um, primarily to the United States. Um, there was a big, like, kind of movement in, like, the 90s um, where a lot of children were being adopted from Asia. And Holt was one of the organizations that hosted a lot of those adoptions. So, yeah. And do you know why why your adoptive parents wanted to adopt? Yeah. 
sort of. Um, my dad's side of the family had a lot of trouble producing healthy sperm, basically. Okay. So um, there was trouble on that end. So mm-hmm. it's going to take a lot of like medical procedures to enhance that. Um, and my parents didn't want that. And I think, yeah, I got lucky with my parents because they really, um, they're very kind and understanding of like hardship, I guess, in a sense, Mm -hmm. and really want to make a better life for their friends and family. And so when they were thinking about having kids, I think adoption was always kind of on the table, Mm -hmm. even despite the medical complications. So yeah, yeah. I, I so they never they never had children of their own then nope yeah i have one other brother and he's also adopted from korea so oh, okay but you yeah. two aren't related i mean biologically no okay yeah. why yeah. did they decide to go through and adopt from korea um because they're not korean right no okay yeah that's a great question um yeah, I really don't have sure. the answer for that. Yeah. <laughs> but, and so you just have one other brother. They didn't adopt anybody else and they have no biological kids. Yeah. No, no biological. So this might kind of sound like a dumb question, but since you don't look like any of your family members, because they're Caucasian, your parents, right? Mm-hmm. Your adopted parents. Yep. Um, when you grew up, did you know that you were adopted? Yeah, my parents were very open about uh, having me embrace my adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, now they were open about it. I embraced it to an extent, and then it took a while for me to actually come to like um full acceptance of it. I think, yeah, so they were always open about me being adopted. We would celebrate something called a coming home day. Mm-hmm. so it was like the day I came to America, and my mom would bring Korean food into the elementary school or whatever, and oh, that's cool. Yeah, just celebrate that day. So, yeah. So you kind of touched a little bit on struggling with coming to terms with being adopted. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it really like boiled down to when I started middle school. Just adolescence in general is is hard, mm-hmm. and um, trying to figure out you know your identity and whatnot. And I was pretty harshly picked on for being Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, at my school, which was predominantly white. And so it confused me more so than anything because I would go home and look at my parents and they were white. Like I have, you know, 20 cousins, they're all white. You know, my whole, I'm just in a white family. Yeah. And so being bullied for being Asian really kind of made me start to resent my ethnicity. Mm. And I, you know, developed very self-deprecating behaviors. And I didn't like the fact that I was Korean. Um, That was really hard to navigate. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think it really just kind of like pushed me away from a part of myself that was inherent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that disassociation, you know, like anyone, right? This disassociation from yourself causes a lot of problems just in general about finding out who you are and what your values are and what you care about and what your morals are. And so it took me a really long time to really understand that I'm not just Korean or like, I'm not just an adopted kid. Like 
I'm me. Yeah. And so I really have that deep sense of, of myself because I got pushed out from who I was kind of at a young age. So. Yeah. Kind of lose your authenticity and start questioning who you think you are or who you should be against who you really are, you know? So how was your life then growing up in an all white family? I mean, was it weird? Did you feel different? Did you feel like you fit in? When I was little, it was, it was, it was great. Um, It's okay. Yeah, it was it was good because I was accepted and um it was my it was my grandmother who I mean she made everyone feel like they were the most special person in the world and mm. um you know it was I think when I was going through that hard time, um, you know, she was, she was, I could always trust that she was always going to be there for me. Mm. And, you know, I had my problems with my parents because just child parent. They're your parents. (laughs) Right. Um, But when I would see my, my grandmother, um, you know, just just full embrace of 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 love and, and kindness and compassion um no matter what it was it was just unconditional and so um you know i always trusted her mm. <laughs> no matter what the other people in my family you know it wasn't as like i never felt as stable of a relationship with people in my family mm-hmm. because um because of the loss of myself and um, I didn't trust anybody and, uh, but she was always there. So. Mm. So important. So you did talk a little bit about being able to celebrate your culture with, in your adopted family, besides the day that they got you and brought Korean food. Did you guys, did they, did they embrace the culture at all? Yeah, sort of culture. So deep, right. I mean, food was a big part of the culture, I guess. Um, and then my uncle actually married a Korean woman. Hmm. And so we kind of have that tie. And so we'd go to her parents, her parents' church occasionally. And, um, you know, it was all in Korean. So we didn't really know what we were talking <laughs> about. But um, right. it was cool just to be around people who kind of looked like me. So, right. Um, yeah. 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 So your sibling was also adopted. How did you guys get along growing up? Mm. Um, not great. Yeah. On my end, yeah. You were older. I'm the younger sibling. You're the younger sibling. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. Um, you know, I think part of that difficulty of resenting my ethnicity, uh, my brother was the, you know, archetype person that I saw in myself that I hated Mm. and I wanted to destroy that part of myself you know so to speak and so whenever I would be upset or you know I get picked on that day and um 
I would come home and I just, I'd be so angry and um, I'd take it out on him. Mm. And so it was a tough, I mean, it was a tough relationship just because for him on my part, because I just saw him as something that I didn't like in myself. And I let him know that. (laughs) 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 So yeah, that was too bad. I, uh, you know, I have a lot of regret. I have a lot of regret for that. So how do you guys get along now? We don't interact really too much. Um, He lives in Canada uh, with his wife and, um, you know, he actually just got married last year. I remember going up to him during his wedding and just kind of breaking down crying and Mm. saying, you know, yeah, I'm just sorry. Uh, Yeah. So little by little, you know, I'll, I'll pick away at mending yeah. that relationship, but yeah, tough. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about how you kind of, you know, lost yourself and your authenticity in junior high and you're still a young guy, but, um, do you feel like you've kind of embraced who you are or are you still trying to figure that out? Um, yeah, no, I've embraced it and I really feel, you know, there's plenty of things that I need to work on and become more self-aware about. And, you know, it's not over, but Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally I know who I am and not just the good parts, but like the darker parts. And it's taken me a really long time, but I've slowly been able to kind of accept those parts about myself and integrate them in ways that I can use to kind of move through life you know, life isn't easy. So, you know, sometimes anger is necessary. And mm-hmm. I had a lot of anger when I was a kid. And, but it would come out like an explosion when I was younger. And I've worked really, really hard about learning to become aware of it, learning to use it in ways that are, that are useful and not destructive. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think you had mentioned in an email to me that you said it confused you because your parents were Caucasian. What were you meaning by that? What were you, what were you thinking? Like the kids who were picking on me, I mean, it was almost like, um, not humorous per se, but it was confusing because, um, you know, culturally I'm just an American white kid. Yeah. No. I mean, that's how I grew up. You know, I was fortunate to come into a very stable family. And, you know, I had a a good childhood with, you know, sports and summer reading programs and friends and, you know, very, very, very typical American childhood. And so then when I would get bullied for, you know, being uh, Asian, I had to wrap my whole head around it because I didn't identify as that. And yet that's how I was being perceived. Right. And so it, it gave me a very deep understanding about the psychology of perception in general, mm-hmm. especially from a child's point of view or prepubescent, whatever, adolescent. And so perception is very important. And so, yeah, anyways, that, 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 was, that was the confusion. Yeah. So the anger that you carried because of the bullying and um, that kind of thing, it sounds like it was more from the bullying than anger from being adopted or was it kind of both? Were they kind of intertwined? Yeah. I think the anger came mostly from the bullying 
because it was unwarranted. But if I were to actually think about like my adoption, and I can't really think about it when I was a kid because I didn't probably understand it all that well, but I feel just so grateful. Mm. I mean, that's, it's, it's almost indescribable, right? I mean, I was born and then put into a system that I could have been adopted by anybody. Yeah. And I'm going to pat my parents on the back here, but I have probably like the most modest and humble and hardworking parents that I could ask for. And it really, it probably saved my life. Mm. So. Yeah. It's kind of funny how, you know, as adoptees, we're told that we're lucky a lot of the time and it is kind of like a lottery. A lot of adoptees are told, you know, that we chose you, but actually you were just the next one up for adoption. Like you weren't chosen. Most aren't. I mean, I have heard of um, people that have, were there with, you know, five other babies and then they were chosen out of those, that group of babies. But most of the time it's basically winning the lottery, you know, when you get that great adoptive family like that. Cause I mean, there's so many adoptees that don't have that story. I, I'm one of those two that won the lottery. So nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it could have been it. Like I said, it could have been anybody. It could have been literally anybody. Yeah. Um, so you sounds like you get along with your, you know, adoptive parents. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Have you ever searched for your, or can you? I don't know what. How do you, would you even search in Korea for biological relatives? Yeah, it'd be difficult. Again, I think it it comes down to the cultural element of that having a baby out of wedlock is is dishonorable, and so um, I could go through the organization, but I think it's up to the birth parents to choose whether or not they would want to meet up. Personally, I've had no desire to meet my birth parents because, yeah, I just think it wouldn't, like, I I don't feel any resentment. Well, that's maybe not true, actually. Yeah. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I don't, think it would, I don't think it would give me kind of the, like, I don't know. I actually haven't thought about that question, actually, in a while. So. Yeah. I don't know. Do they do DNA over there? Like ancestry? Probably. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think you've suffered any trauma from your relinquishment? Do you like have any residual trauma from? Um, Probably, you know, I can't highlight exactly what it is, but the question that preceded this one um, kind of invoked this thought of, well, I have tendencies with attachment uh, that coincide with a traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had a pretty good childhood in the United States, but that's not to say that it wasn't hard the first five months. Yeah. And especially, I think the uh, disconnection from my birth mother, you know, I think babies need that chemical bonding or yeah, one or other. I didn't get it. So, right. So you're in your twenties. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 26. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, most people don't, that doesn't really start hitting home 
most of the time until like your forties and fifties, it seems like from what I've seen out in the adoptee community, it's kind of like almost like a midlife crisis really, (laughs) but it's about your adoption and just trying to come to terms with all that that entails, including looking back on your life and being like, like you were saying, attachment disorders or, you know, problems with attaching and, oh, that's probably why I do that. I do that thing I do, you know, that I don't really like, or that's not really serving me, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but that doesn't usually come along till later, it seems. But I think the community is kind of coming out now and talking more about what really happens with adoptions. And so I think the younger generations are getting there a little sooner Hmm. now. So, I mean, it's a good thing because I wish I had kind of uh, explored it uh, when I was younger and kind of gotten through a lot of what I've had to deal with. But I haven't had to deal with a lot because of my adoption being so positive that, that I see in the community, so many people hurting. I'm just like, oh my gosh, it just breaks my heart because I can't imagine some of the things that they've been through. It's hard enough just being adopted, like you were saying, and being relinquished and taken from your birth mother and coming to terms with all that. But then when you have a bad adoptive experience in the family, that just, it's horrible. So I'm so glad to hear a positive adoption story today. So you told me your experience with, with adoption has taught you many things about life. What has adoption taught you? I think the most profound thing that I've learned is that family can be anyone. Mm. Um, You know, like it's not determinate off of blood per se. And um, so, you know, the love that my parents showed me and the love that my my grandmother and all my family have been very, very supportive and encouraging. And, you know, they want the best for me. They care for me. So it really drove me to to see the world in that kind of lens and to understand that people struggle. I mean, everyone struggles, right? Mm-hmm. Life isn't easy and, and you need people to be there for you Yeah, uh, through all stages. And so, you know, it drove me to, I'm, I'm in school right now to become a clinical psychologist, mm. a mental health therapist. And so I want to be that person who somebody can turn to when they're having a tough time because I was given that from these random people who adopted me, you know? Right. So yeah, it's just taught me family can be anyone and that, uh, you know, showing somebody love and showing love can really turn a bad situation um, into something beautiful. Mm. And, and I was given that opportunity and, I want to pay it forward as much as I can. So Yeah. And I mean, adoptee therapists are being highly sought out by adoptees. <laughs> so yeah, that's exciting that you're going to be doing that. You know, I, I kind of touched on, uh, there's a lot of hurting adoptees out there. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for those that are struggling? I mean, you kind of went through the bullying and then losing your authenticity and then kind of learning to embrace it again. What made you turn around and want to embrace who you were? Was there something that happened? Were you just sick of not being who you were? Did you realize you were not being who you were? Like what happened? Cause you're pretty young to be like, yeah. <laughs> you know, realizing all that. So yeah, I'm just wondering uh, like, how did you do that? I mean, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is that I was I was sick of the person who I was becoming. Mm. So through all that turmoil and all that 
adversity, I started to become very uh, nihilistic and cynical and narcissistic, I think, as well. Mm. But it was all about me, me, me. Why me? And, and so I would blame people. I'd, it's your fault. This is why I am who I am. Or this is, you know, it was this situation that made me who I was. And I don't remember exactly uh, when it was, but I really started to realize that I didn't like who I was becoming. Mm. Um, you know, I was, I was hurting people around me. I was hurting loved ones. And I was hurting myself. And it was only until I realized that it was my responsibility to take care of my life that I really started getting into the work of self-improvement, so to speak, or self, self-healing and self-growth, I would say. Yeah. So what specifically did you do to start that healing and growth? <laughs> um. I started to, I think it started with humility was the main thing. I got into some trouble and I actually ended up spending a night in jail. That'll wake you up. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember my phone call with my dad, who's a criminal defense attorney. Oh. Um, and he wasn't all that proud of me at that point. <laughs> um and so you know I had I was in handcuffs and feet cuffs for the whole night wow and I would just was thinking in that cell like how did I get here right (laughs) (laughs) and I was like I thought about it and I was like well I got myself here And that's when I realized, like, I'm the only one who can get myself out also. So it's kind of symbolic for my own self-imprisonment and for ultimate liberation or transcendence or whatever you want to call it of, you know, the corrupted self. Mm. um, I had to take responsibility for my actions. That's what I started doing and so what did you do after that to start that journey? Um, okay, so this is a good segue, I guess. Uh, it was Buddhism, actually. Mm. Uh, the structure of Buddhism that really helped me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Buddhism, it's not, it's not a religion per se. It's, it's more like a, a way of life is mm-hmm. how I like to describe it. And um, it talks about that life is hard. Life is suffering. That's the first noble truth of Buddhism. It's like life is really, really difficult. And I'm like, okay, I agree with that. <laughs> you don't have to tell me twice. Yeah. I'm on board. <laughs> um, and but the second noble truth is why life is suffering. The third noble truth is that there's a way out. And the fourth noble truth is that this is the way. Mm. And one of the principles in the fourth noble truth is right understanding. And it basically, it, this is the humiliating part, is you have to become aware of the reality of the situation. You can no longer delude yourself into thinking that the world careened around you to torture you for, you know, however many, whatever, your whole life. But that, you know, the things that you did had a cause and effect. Yeah. And the effect can be positive 
or the effect can be negative. And yeah. Yeah. Anyways. So interesting. Yeah. And then you are interested in becoming a death doula. And I've just been hearing about this recently. It sounds like an up and coming thing. Do you want to explain that a little bit? What is a death doula? Uh, yeah. Death doula is basically, um, I would say it's like a emotional mental health counselor for somebody who's in the dying process. Mm. Um, death is one of those things that it is the thing that is, you know, the ultimate unknown, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when people are um, approaching that stage in their life, the death doula is there to empower and support the person through their process. The things like, what do you want to do after you're dead? You know, do you want a burial? You made it, you want to do this? Or something a little bit more difficult would be having a safe space to talk about the emotions that are bubbling up for that person in that time. And they're very, very unique to the problems. Yeah. I had a um, friend stay with me who was terminal. I didn't know she was terminal, but it ended up being that way. And my biggest regret in that was when she would start to want to talk about that kind of stuff. I would just be like, nope, we're not going there. We're not talking about that because that's not going to happen. You know, and I would just cut her off like, nope, we're not talking about that. And that's my biggest regret that I didn't give her that space to talk about it. Mm. Yeah. I, to this day, I'm just still like, why did I do that? I did it for me. It was a selfish reason. I, did, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to hear it, you know, but I, yeah, to this day, I still feel horrible about that. So how do you learn to be a death doula? Is there like a class or is it through your psychology classes? Is this like something new? that they're teaching or do you just, I don't know. What do you, how do you become a death doula? Yeah. So the, like kind of the, I guess like professional way you become a death doula is that there's like several different certification courses. Oh, okay. Um, that you could take each one kind of varying a little from the other. Do you have to have a psychology background to no. do that? No. And that's okay. kind of the other one of the prerequisites basically is a predisposition, like naturally mm -hmm. to be able to talk about death. Yeah. And so I've had a lot of death in my life in general, mm. and I've always had an inclination to not look at it as something that I lost per se, but more uh, as part of life. And um, I was always curious about it. So and that was when I was really young, really, really young. So mm. I've always been fascinated by death and which has kind of allowed me to hold those spaces for people to talk about it because I, I'm interested in it as opposed to, I think, um, you know, maybe the more normal thing would be to be scared of it. And I don't know, yeah. I have that much fear about it, but I don't. So, yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that you do is you do Dharma talks in your area. And I don't think a lot of people even know what Dharma is. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Dharma in the kind of like the sense that I'm talking about it is just the teachings of the Buddha. So there's three jewels of Buddhism. Uh, the Buddha, 
which is the goal. Um, and that just means the enlightened one or the awakened one. So it's self-awareness. Mm. Um, the Sangha, which is the community. So that's who helps you along the way. And then uh, the Dharma, which is the teachings. And that's how you get there. Mm. And so the Dharma class is Buddhist principles in the lens of daily life is what I teach. Yeah. Okay, cool. I love talking about that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you follow Buddhism at all? Um, You know, I kind of take a little bit from here and there, but mostly, yeah. Um, I don't know a lot about the intricacies of it like you do, but um, the philosophy of it, I think is uh, what I embrace about it. And like I said, I just, you know, whatever feels good to me, and that changes, you know, as I get older too, is, oh, that maybe I don't believe that anymore. What I used to believe 20 years ago, you know, I think as you grow and change, that kind of changes as well. Mm. So is there any advice that you would have for adoptees that are struggling? Um, <laughs> advice. <laughs> it's kind of cliche, but I think trust your gut. Is something that I would tell people just in general, you know, and that means you have to listen to your gut. It's easy to get caught up in like everybody else's voice, mm-hmm. but if you can quiet the mind and find your intuition, listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to that. Is there anything else you'd want to share about anything that we didn't cover? I think we covered it. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, this is fantastic. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on today yeah. and sharing your story. We're educating the world in one story at a time. You know, wh- whether it's a good adoption story or a bad adoption story, they're all educating the world about what really um, happens with adoption. So thanks for sharing today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this was such a sweet interview for me. I have not interviewed someone so young and yet wanting to work on himself and be a better person at the age of 26. So many adoptees don't even realize that their adoption is affecting their entire lives until we are in our 40s and 50s. But I'm telling you, because we as adoptees are coming out and telling our stories, we're getting the word out about adoption and how it affects us. It's going to help these younger generations realize it quicker than we did. And this is the whole reason I do this podcast is to educate the world. But this young man at such an early age is wanting to be the best version of himself, the most authentic version of himself. And he wants to work on it at such a young age. It's so inspiring. And during the interview, as I was asking Frankie questions, I could just feel him thinking about what I asked and just trying to dig deeper. And I'm sure as the weeks pass after we did our interview that he will continue to process and learn from what was asked of him during this interview. It can be such a heavy topic and 
I don't usually give my guests the questions ahead of time unless they ask because I like the interview to be spontaneous. I don't even do a pre-interview with anyone. Sometimes I don't even know what my guest is going to look like. It's new and fresh and just, I love the spontaneity of kind of just doing it on the fly like that. I think it's more real, it's more authentic, and that way there's no scripted answers. It is just on the fly, truthful, whatever pops into your emotions and mind in that moment to answer that question. So for me, it just feels like it gives a more true and authentic flair to the interview. And I've had many guests email me afterwards saying, you know, that question you asked me, I thought about it later and this came to me and that came to me and it really got me thinking and processing. So that's why I do it in this style that I do. And it is my hope that some of the questions I'm asking my guests get you to think and process about your own situation. And I hope it helps. I know that hearing adoptees stories can be so validating, but I hope that you're asking some of these questions of yourself that I am asking of my guests so that you can get something out of it as well. And speaking of answering the interview questions that I'm asking of my guests, have you thought about coming on the podcast and telling your story? Trust me when I say there is someone out there waiting to hear your specific story. And your story will help so many others out there. You have no idea the impact that you can have on fellow adoptees and those in the constellation. If you would like to get a hold of me, you can email me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. If you want to know more about me and the podcast, you can go to my website, mindyourownkarma.com. If you have been enjoying Mind Your Own Karma for a while now, please subscribe to the podcast. It really helps the algorithms and it helps get the word out about adoption. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.